You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our second week discussing Sophie Hannah's Hercule Poirot's Silent Night, chapters 12 to 28. Or is it 13 to 28? Either uh, way, 13. it's to 28. Well, uh, you don't need to remember the chapter title because it's Inspector Mackle's own two hands to 28. What an <laughs> opening. What, what an opening sequence. that chapter was. Oh, my gosh. I really wanted to put that in the first week because I just couldn't wait to talk about Inspector Mackle and what a fantastic character he is. But in, what an opening. Inspector Mackle is great. trumped only slightly by Cynthia, by Cynthia <laughs> Catchpool for the most insane character in this book. Yeah, he fulfills the role of, like, the incompetent policeman Bobby character, but Sophie Hanna is clearly- only including him so that she can just make fun of him as much as possible. Yeah. Like literally he There's he, there's incompetence and then there's just blind, willful Stupidity. ignorance. Yeah. Like he suspects someone, and to be fair, this this is an approach you can take to murder mysteries, but he he believes that the character with the strongest alibi is the most likely to have committed the crime. Because there are 32 people. <laughs> yeah, I really, I really loved how Sophie Hannah did not wait a single second to point out exactly what was wrong with that floor. You know, Mackle says, oh, yeah, at the nightclub he owns, all of the guests said this. Said that they know What him, possible yeah. man would have this many people to provide an alibi for him, said Inspector Mackle. Yeah. Goodness, I wonder. I if wonder. only, if only we knew what he did for work. If only we could correlate these two things and make some sort of deduction <laughs> based off the clues that have been presented to us. Right. That opening aside, though, Mackle is really kind of just completely unimportant in this story. Well, he's good fun. I did enjoy his presence, but I mean, look, I'm not the one solving the book, but I'd say he's a very effective smokescreen in some instances, and also is yeah. obviously a venue for comedy, which is a huge part of this book, just keeping you on board in general. But yeah. The real meat of this story is getting outside of Frelingslow for these particular chapters. It's the first time we get to really explore what's going on in Munby on Sea. And I did quite like the way that Sophie Hannah in this set of chapters really played with this idea that I, I will say somewhat ironically to my previous comment, Mackle is a great example of, which is that Sophie has sort of divided the book into two types of characters, as I see it. There's the characters who will observe things and there's the characters who will impress their observations onto other people so mackle and janet and jonathan and cynthia and i think dr osgood whenever they're talking will always end any observation with don't you thinks and isn't it obvious you must agrees but everyone else will just make an observation they'll just say oh yes you know this is true there's very clearly defined separation of who has facts to share and who has a perspective on the world that they wish everyone shared. I think it actually was Dr. Osgood talking with, with Catchpool because he's taken up decorating Christmas trees as a avenue for collecting information from the people who would, as you say, come up to him and, and you know, talk to him and impress their opinions on him while he's trying to decorate these Christmas trees. Is, isn't Catchpool's narration through that section just wonderful? It's fantastic. There is, there is a scene in which one of, the, one of the many characters, they try to order Catchpool around. And the question of who's ordering around who is one that's kind of subtly- um, moved into the into the story, like how Cynthia orders Poirot around, and 
Edward is always kind of thinking about how his family views him in the shadow of Poirot. But as the novel goes on, Poirot takes steps to reinforce his positive relationship with Catchpool and they rely upon each other. It gets so gay. It's fantastic, but I kind of love it. I love that there's such a, like a positive, totally not gay relationship between the the Holmes and Watson of this group. He made me feel like uh, the the, the refraction from a gorgeous diamond or whatever. Whenever he steps into the room- Cashful is swept off his feet and everything. And the whole world becomes brighter oh, in his so presence. Good. But yeah, I, I really love the way that this novel goes about the relationship between these two characters. Because Poirot and Catchpool trust each other to investigate different things with different methods, that also means that Sophie can play with the structure of the novel jumping between the two characters. There's not actually that much of a structural difference between the scenes that are creating and venting tension. When Catchpool is decorating the first tree with Jonathan and Janet, it feels like he's under pressure. But then when we get to the scene with Douglas and Maddie shortly thereafter, it doesn't actually feel like there's as much tension there, even though what they're saying is more or less the same. And I'm not sure quite what that is in the way that Sophie Hannah's written it, but just the the countenance with which people approach Catchpool creates these very stark differences. I guess what what I enjoy about the structure, literally from chapter to chapter, there are numerous points in the narrative where something really drastic will happen or be implied to happen. And then the next chapter will be something completely separate or something happening at the same time as the previous chapter or even earlier in the previous chapter. This happens multiple times. The other thing is, is that we often jump from a Catchpool chapter to a Poirot chapter, but Catchpool is writing them all and recounting the Poirot chapters from conversations he had later with Poirot. So there is sort of this implicit lack of urgency because he's recounting it secondhand. Well, that's 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 kind of an interesting thing. I was going to point out a specific circumstance of this. So Poirot is given the warning. He's told that Arnold is missing, which is obviously a big problem because we're pretty sure that Arnold's about to be murdered. And in this instance, we, we find out that he's he hasn't been killed quite yet. He's still running around being his normal jolly self. But we get the word Arnold is missing. We cut back to Catchpool for an entire chapter. And then the first several pages of the following chapter where Pyro actually, Praro, I should say, actually returns. Jumping from one mispronunciation to the <laughs> yeah, other. Exactly. Uh, but, but when Pyro <laughs> actually returns to where Catchpool is, which is assumedly where the action is going to take place, Catchpool in his narration, takes the time to say, and then Poirot told me about all of the things that had happened to him. And here's what I think about the things that happened to him. Oh, and actually, Arnold isn't missing at all. Like, yes. this back and forth between creating, oh, no, Arnold's been killed. Arnold, like- Arnold both wasn't missing at all and was off doing perhaps one of the stupidest things a smart person has done. And we use that that tension and relief sort of cycle between the, the chapters to create this big meta joke where like things yes. are always about to happen, but things happen very infrequently. <laughs> Like actual yeah. crises. I mean, there's even a bit where Poirot says, you know, I have I have discovered the ultimate puzzle and I'm so close to getting all these solutions done. And then we do a flashback to his night in the hospital, which shall we shall we talk about that now? <laughs> oh um, my god. Cynthia. Cynthia, Cynthia, Cynthia. Basically, Cynthia, our narrator's mother, 
who has been nightmarish this entire book, insufferable, decides that since Hercule Poirot needed to get to the hospital where Stanley Nivett was killed, the most obvious way to hurry things along was to poison him with his tea. Twice! So that he would get there sooner so that they could all enjoy Christmas together. She poisons him twice. And yes, it is with the motivation. Yes, fails the first time. (laughs) This is, I was talking about this in the first week, how everyone kept falling asleep, but it turns out it's because Cynthia is a sociopath. She's poisoning people to try and hurry the plot along, which is great. And she's talking about how wonderful it is that one of her friends is like drugging her husband. He goes on and on. he has strange political aspirations or something. Whenever he tries to talk about getting into politics, she drugs him so he forgets what he was doing. Which is definitely oh, a big nasty crime. Yeah, yeah. Cynthia is Cynthia is fun in that regard. That as you say, she like imposes her her will upon people, and at first it's through observations, then it's through tea and cakes, then it's through a, an insufferable stay over Christmas, and then it's poisoning. But it should be pointed out, of course, and this is another one of those structure things that like. We are expecting, because this is the flow of a murder mystery novel, you know, we learn about the crime, we interrogate the suspects, we investigate the scene of the crime, and then some other complications happen and we wrap it all up with the, with the denouement, the denouement, some might call the it. The dun-dun-dun. But, of course, what Sophie Hannah's done is that she has concocted a reason for us to avoid seeing the actual scene of the crime in Inspector Mackle, but then brought us to the scene of the crime anyway by virtue of Cynthia's poisoning. And so I just like to point out how she's managed to keep us like both derail the typical detective story structure and then bring us back on track with the same sort of device. Someone with tremendous authority being really insufferable. And I just think that's really impressive. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the entire novel is in many respects a tribute to Stanley Nevin and (laughs) Arnold Laurier. Uh They are both very lighthearted, unserious people who would see no harm done. And so the book makes every endeavor to have this entire ordeal about two murders seem as unserious as possible in a way that is not disingenuous to what the text is actually saying. And it's it's kind of genius. Yeah, it's not disingenuous to the topic of Christmas and to the the tone of a Agatha Christie novel, I suppose, which I which I do really enjoy. Like you know, we, we can't do high-speed car chases necessarily, so a, a friendly family poisoning. Well, that would, that would be outrageous. Nobody's ever done that before. I haven't seen that before in a professional work of fiction. But definitely not a professional one. Not professional. Very unprofessional. Anyway, speaking of unprofessional. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder <laughs> mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. We are talking Sophie Hannah's Silent Night, a Hercule Poirot mystery, and we'll be back with more of that. In just a second, stick around. You're on to SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you now. A couple of Saturdays ago, Melbourne's Rising Sun Hotel was host to the Sisters in Crime Australia Scarlet Stiletto Awards. It's a short story competition that fosters in the next generation's of Australian crime writing. And it's also just a great opportunity for women all around the country to put their storytelling chops to the test in our favorite genre. I spoke on Tuesday Drive earlier this week with Lindy Cameron, who is a national co-convener for Sisters in Crime Australia and has been since its founding, and also is the head honcho over at Clandestine Press. I'll throw you over to past me. Enjoy. Lindy, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome to 2SER. Thanks for having me. 
They've been running for 30 years. You're responsible for publishing the collection that comes out each year. How do you go about picking from the what 4,000 entries that you've had for the Scarlet Stilettos to sum it up in the 30th anniversary collection? Every year, this year we had a record 250 stories entered just for this year alone. Uh, and there's a, a, a series of judges. There's five of the conveners, current conveners, and a couple of extra judges who share the entry stories amongst uh, ourselves to, to um, arrive at a long list and then that long list is taken away for the weekend uh, to a place by the beach where we feel like the famous five because there's only five of us drinking coffee and wine and, and eating lots of stuff while we um, r- um, run up a, a short list and that's how we ar- arrive at the awards that we presented on Saturday night but as you say we've been doing that for 30 years with, for a grand total of over four and a half thousand stories read over over that three decades. Um, and I've been doing it for the entire 30 years, so my brain is full of lots and lots of murder mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, were, you were saying to me just before we came on air that the uh, the winner of the 30th anniversary prize, uh, Ramoni uh, Reshowitz, yeah. uh, did the same thing for the 30th anniversary that the winner of the first prize did. What? Tell me, tell me a bit more about that. Uh, well, Kate Kennedy back in, in 1994 won um, the first prize. She entered two stories back 30 years ago. One she'd been working on for several weeks. And then on her way home from posting that entry, she had an idea for another one, ran home, wrote it up in, in like the half a day, put that in the post. And that's the story that won her the first um, uh, Scarlet Stiletto trophy. Romany did exactly the same thing this year. She claims on the night, she told us on the night that she had written that award-winning story, which also won the Art and Crime Prize as well. So it won two categories. She also did the same thing. She wrote it in a couple of days leading up to, to the deadline to have the story put in. So it's kind of a nice little bookend for, for uh, how much time you can spend on a story. You can work it to death and win, or you can just you know have inspiration on the spur of the moment and, and do the same thing. Yeah, so for those of us who are in the crime fiction world, the Scarlet Stilettos, I think, are a, v- a very familiar part of the calendar with some amazing authors that have come through, like Aoife Clifford, for example, who's gone on to get published after uh, after winning the Scarlet Stilettos. I guess for those who aren't familiar, can we tell me a little bit about the significance of Sisters in Crime Australia and the Scarlet Stilettos for finding the new faces of talent in Australian crime writing? Well, we started as a readers and, and writers group. There weren't that many writers. This is 30, 32 years ago. We've been going for nearly 32. I think it's 33 next year. I'm losing track. I'm getting old. <laughs> um, and we started just as a group who were celebrating the books and fiction that was out there written by Australian women and international writers as well. Um, but after a couple of years, we decided we've got to do something about increasing the numbers of you know, crime writers, women crime writers who are in Australia. Um, and so we thought, well, what, what better way to do it than to start a short story competition? Now, in the first couple of years, we only had, um, you know, monetary prizes quite low back in those days and just the first, second and third prize. And then, you know, people, sponsors would come along and they would say, well, we'd like to sponsor a youth prize or we'd like to sponsor a malice domestic uh, category. And so gradually over the years, we ended up with, um, lost track, 15, I think, 14 categories we've got now, 13, mm-hmm. something like that. Lots yeah. of track. Um, but they cover all sorts of things like Malice Domestic, uh, my publishing company, Clandestine Press, 
sponsors the Cross Genre Prize, which means you, you can write a story that, as long as it's got a crime and mystery in it, it can also be fantasy or sci-fi or spec fic. Love um, that. Other categories are, you know, the best thriller or um, the most satisfying retribution, although that seems <laughs> to apply to nearly every story that gets entered. <laughs> yeah, I get- uh, Yeah, so we came up with all of these other categories. So people who enter have a chance of winning, you know, a story. A, 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 Category for which they specifically entered, but they're also always um, in for the first, second, and third prize. So, um, as I said, Romney um, uh, entered, uh, won both the first prize, which is the fabulous Scarlet Stiletto Trophy suit, which is actually a real fair dinkum shoe that we we sourced from um, shoe shops and and um, op shops and things like that. Fabulous red shoe. Love that. And we removed the heel and we replaced it with a like a, a dagger. Yeah. So that it's got has both both um, uh, meanings of the word stiletto. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so as I said, Romney entered, uh, uh, won that prize, but her story was also the best prize, uh, the best story in the category that went to an art grant. So so basically, we, we, just, we wanted to get people while they were young, which is why we started with the youth prize as well. Tara Moss uh, was the first person to win that prize back in the day, and that's when that's when the category, when we thought youth people were 21. <laughs> we thought young people were 21 and under. It's now gone down to 19 and uh, under 19. So. Yeah. And I mean, Tara is a great example of one of the, the I think it's now 34 authors who've gone from the Scarlet yes. Stilettos on to be published as yeah. kind of full-length authors, which is just fantastic. Yeah. It includes Angela Savage and, and Ellie Marnie and Issa Clifford, as you mentioned, and Snookstra. Uh, and Kate Kennedy is one of Australia's best-known um, uh, short story writers. Still, she won the first two, one for the first two years in a row, back to back. And that's when we were a bit worried that maybe the whole competition might turn into the Kate Kennedy Award. So we banned her <laughs> from entering anymore and said, "Okay, if you want to, if you want to be involved, you now have to be a judge." Um, and so she happily did that. And interestingly, that happened that happened another four times. So there are five writers who won first prize twice who were banned and had to become a judge. That's fantastic. Now, last thing yeah. before we go, Lindy, I understand that uh, the, the crime fiction's wheel never stops turning and entries are already open for next year's Scarlet Stilettos. Entries are open for next year's Scarlet Stilettos. And as you mentioned at the start, the um, every year we we produce a an e-book of that year's winning stories. That means first prize and all the category prizes. But because this year was the 30th anniversary of the competition, we are uh, clandestine press has published a paperback and ebook called just called the Scarlet Stiletto, which um, features only the first prize-winning stories from three decades. And I've already had feedback from people saying it's one of the best collection of single collection of, of women's crime writing that, that they've read for ages. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. Great feedback. Lindy Cameron there, national co-convener for Sisters in Crime Australia and founder of Clan Destine Press, where you can grab a copy of those Scarlet Stiletto collections. We'll have links up on the podcast. We're going to jump back in to Sophie Hanna's Silent Night in just a second. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And we are here in our second week discussing Sophie Hanna's Silent Night from chapters 13 to 28. I am in the hot seat. How hot you feeling? I was more wrong than I expected from the first week. Oh my goodness. I'm 
fascinated. Are you referring to the Romeo and Rosalind stuff or like the actual mystery that matters? Like well, a little bit. That that I was obviously wrong about because I wasn't particularly <laughs> confident, right? Like, first of all, I'm bad at dealing with romance mysteries. We know that we've been doing this show for nearly five years and I've yet to mm-hmm. quite nail a romance plot. Except okay. I, I did I did one really good and I don't remember what it was now. And I was very proud of myself at the time. It's, it's but not anyway. important. I'm sure it doesn't Anyway, <laughs> part of that was obviously that one of the people in the Rosalind situation hadn't actually been introduced yet. Yes. Which is Olga. Well, she doesn't show up until she basically- confesses the whole thing like yeah we have this scene between catchpool and olga where he says i wondered to myself why she would stay with this person and she goes you're probably wondering why i would stay with this person (laughs) and yeah we're all wondering the same question but the the other thing was is i was pretty confident that stanley niven despite being a happy man who no one would want dead would actually be someone wanted dead in this story but oh I don't actually think he had anything to do with it. You don't think that Clarence Niven wanted him dead so that he could steal his hospital bed and move it into the nightclub that he's running? That's not- No, You don't think no. that's the case? No, well, I okay. mean, listen, they, they build those <laughs> hospital beds out of sturdy metal and you want to be able to keep your nightclub standing. That's right. You could make a whole club out of those beds. Well, yeah, what, I, what I'd said in the original theory that I posed was that our killer had wanted Niven dead because they were from their previous life. And I still think I'm right about that motive, but it wasn't Niven. Okay. Because the interesting thing we have is that Professor 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 Burnett. Yep, Burnett. He points at two people in this story after he starts quoting his Bible passage differently. The first of them is Vivienne Laurier, who says that she felt like she was being accused, which hot take, she was. Ooh. And the other one is B. Haskins, the nurse, B. Haskins. who was in the room with Burnett when the crime was supposedly committed. Mm, interesting. Now, I thought it was strange at first that B. Haskins was in the room by the window watching across the courtyard and didn't see what Burnett saw. So I thought at first that we were actually pointing to B. Haskins as an accomplice. Okay. Still a little, little shaky on this, but what I actually think is happening, based on the scene where we go up to the room and Poirot is looking at the photos on the desk. After Arnold's been horribly murdered, yeah. Yes, after Arnold's been murdered, there are, there are photos of everyone when they're younger and happier on the desk, and- Catchpool explicitly doesn't notice something that Poirot does, and they're up to date on all the facts, so it has to be the appearance of someone in the pictures. So my guess is the reason that Burnett is pointing at B. Haskins is because she looks like Vivienne Laurier. Mm, interesting. And that's what Poirot saw in the pictures. No, I will I will remind you, because I'm a I'm a fair host of this of this show, that I, I challenged you last week to find a clue that was unfair to catch Paul. Do you think that this is that clue? Do you think that this visual clue That is indeed my claim. It took me a while, okay? Mm. <laughs> It took me a while. You had to work your little gray cells to death. You're basically saying that Stanley was killed because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Pretty much. Do you think you can have a stab at what exactly the relationship is between 
B. Haskins and and Vivian Laurier. B. Haskins does say at the end of the last chapter we saw her in that she would tell us about some horrible, terrible story. Vivian keeps talking about, and I pointed this out last week, that she lost her family at age 29. Mm. And I think that when she said she lost them, I think she was excommunicated for some reason. We have this entire stoush between Janet and Maddie. And because... They are no longer pinned down by the cruel machinations of William Shakespeare. Yep. I want to say that they're actually meant to be a clue for Vivienne. Okay. Sort of history repeating itself sort of thing. Like maybe part of the torment that she was experiencing when she killed Stanley Niven was reliving the drama that happened between her and perhaps her sister Beatrice. Mm, B. Haskins. Maybe. Maybe. I'll tell you what. I'm going to completely derail you right now. You're saying that- the whole like Laurier family was there together. Yes. And the order of events is that they go there to check out Arnold's room. Yep. And then they go in the room and then they come out of the room. And they all say that they were there together and that everyone was totally focused the whole time. And the, the very silent mother who definitely hasn't been blending into the background while arguments go on this entire novel Totally couldn't have been anywhere else. So somebody was holding the door open for her, but they didn't notice that she was away for a long enough time to kill somebody? I don't think they were holding the door open. I just think that it hadn't been shut. I guess that's enough interrogating you on, on the details of the specific moment. I think we've covered that murder enough. I guess why would Vivienne kill Arnold then, assuming that She's the same killer in both instances, because this is something that was actually brought up in the opening of the book. Catchpool and Poirot were having an argument about the motive for the murders. I think this is the weaker part of the theory, obviously, like and partially that's because the murder has only just happened. So we definitely don't have as much information on it. No, we don't. But I assume that the motivation is more or less the same. But why now is the question. Yeah, sure. Because... Her killing Arnold draws attention to the fact that it was someone in the house, which is already pretty obvious. Poirot is already there, so things are going to get solved. Puts herself at risk. Perhaps the paper flowers and such and the smashing of the window are an attempt to deflect, you know, who actually did the murder, right? That's true. Or because the scene is set up as one of pleasantry and nostalgia, right? There are, there, were, there are flowers there, family photos out on the desk. Was she realizing that the shackles were closing around her and wanted to have a final nice moment with Arnold? I feel like I have a good vibe on your mm. theory at this point. I guess the only thing that I wanted to drill in on then is that question that Poirot and, and Catchpole talk about at the start of the book. So Poirot says, once the crimes were committed, subterfuge became necessary in order to evade justice. But I wonder, without the determination to keep the terrible secret at all costs, there would have been no motive to commit any murders at all. And Catchpool disagrees. Do you think that keeping this terrible secret hidden is the only motivation or the true motivation for these murders? Or do you think it's something else? First of all, we can't prove Poirot wrong. I don't think Sophie Hanna has the ego. <laughs> so you think that these murders were committed to keep a terrible secret hidden. I think so, but I think there's a catch. <laughs> what I'm arguing is that she didn't want to be a part of her previous life and that her previous life did end in betrayal, which is what I'm what I'm saying that she was like excommunicated somehow from that family. 
and it's not necessarily a secret. She's been talking to everyone about her previous family life, right? As it is a contiguous life of hers. But there is a secret. Like, we know because we've read the prologue that there is a secret being kept Yes, I know. I'm trying to figure out how Poirot (laughs) is right, but catch full still has, like, I'm working through this, okay? (laughs) I know you are. I'm enjoying this. (laughs) Just to make clear. Why don't you just figure everything out right now? What should happen? Poirot is right in that her life is contiguous and she was keeping secret that she was Haskins. Cashpool says that it's not a secret. Well, I don't know that he says that it wasn't a secret, but not that secrecy was the motive. That's a good point. I'm going to say that the motive is not necessarily that she's keeping the secret of who she was. It is that she is clinging on to the life she has now in that somehow being connected to B. Haskins means that she has to reopen that wound. That still is playing with the idea of secrecy, but like in in her mind, it's not about the continuity. Oh, this terrible thing I did in my past. It's that she's trying to like extricate herself from that portion of her existence altogether. Sounds pretty cool. It sounds like a lot of big words. I, oh, look, I like that. I, just, I don't know how to make Poirot almost <laughs> wrong, okay, dude? It's uh-huh. it's challenge. Look, maybe he's just less wrong than Catchpool, and we'll just leave it at that. I think that'll do it. That was fun trying to tease out of your brain the last few gray cells that Thank remain you. Thank after you. this discussion. So I suppose we'll wrap things up there. Um, and, of course, return next week for more Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour, where we'll be reading up till the end to chapter 38 writer than thou which is a really fun chapter name given that discussion we just had you're listening to 2SCR 107.3 catch you then see ya happy reading wait no that's purples again god damn it and merry christmas